When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember telling myself, why does every time we pop up on screen, it's either as a waiter, a servant, a martial artist. I have nothing against martial artists, but when you see it over and over again, you grow tired of it. Always some other, right? The professional foreigner or even invisible, right? Even though you're on screen, you're invisible because you're just a prop. You're not serving the story. The story does not revolve around an Asian fan or protagonist in Hollywood mainstream. And I just thought, man, why aren't there more Asian Americans working in Hollywood and being three-dimensional, fully realized characters who are just part of the fabric of America? My name is Brian Yang, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today we're talking to a very old friend of mine, Brian Yang. And a new friend of mine. (laughs) And a friend of everybody's now. He's been in a ton of projects, either in front of the camera or behind the camera. But first, Raman, how are you doing? Uh... You know, (laughs) my usual chipper self. I feel like I've been reading far too many things that are mostly bringing me down with a few things that are giving me a little bit of like positive vibes, I guess. And you're interspersing that with Warrior and Never Have I Ever, right? I already have completed all of those things. And one day we will do an episode if you ever catch up with me. Uh, I mean, I have been reading a lot of really depressing graphic novels about Korean war trauma and the Cambodian genocide. And honestly, in the real news, it's been kind of triggering because you're following like the real news, the Mm -hmm. terrible situation in Afghanistan with the US exit, the UN climate report and the just consistent shit show of anti-voting rights legislation in a lot of states. But, But one really positive thing has been the census. I've been kind of geeking out on census data. And what have you discovered? Okay, so I don't know if people have seen the headlines, but 2020, every 10 years in the United States, we do the census and we report back the data and that's used for redistricting, for government programs, lots of things for us to understand. And honestly, a lot of businesses use the census data too. And Mm -hmm. I might misquote this, but according to Axios and a lot of other folks, for the first time we are seeing the majority population in decline. And that's not saying the majority is the minority, but that's just showing kind of minority populations are on the rise in this country. And the data, the way it's cut, is just super, super interesting. Yeah. I think the exact number is that about 400 US counties are now minority white, meaning they've, in those specific areas, white non-Hispanic Americans are now in the minority. 
in those yeah, areas. Yeah, that, that's like a Fox News red alert, right? So, mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And, and even Asian populations as well is kind of are on, are on the rise. And, and I guess that's interesting. Um, there's increasingly more people that are identifying as mixed race or identifying with more than one race. I mean, our kids would kind right. of count towards that. Yep. And I find that heartening. But at the same time, I worry about the backlash. This is now a talking point and a wedge issue that can be used. So it's a mixed bag. I mean, it's like we knew this was happening. And 10 years later, the data has kind of shown what's going to happen and what's going to happen 10 years from now, I think. Well, I think what's interesting is you and I grew up in two different types of county breakdowns, I would think, right? Like the area that I grew up in was probably, especially around the Chinatown area, would fall into this category where majority was racially diverse and definitely non-white. And you growing up where you did, you were the minority in a majority. So what do you think this means, I don't know, in the next 10, 20, the next generation? Like how... People are going to have to get used to it. I, I used to think about pop culture acceptance. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, you, you mentioned Warrior and Never Have Ever, but in pop culture acceptance, uh, I'll use this example, um, hip hop and black culture and rap music. God, I'm going to sound like a total old white dude when I say this. <laughs> but I think those things, as well as other black cultural icons, normalized in a good and a bad way, black culture, minority culture, in a pretty segregated America, we had a view in. Now, to be clear, it made a lot of people pat themselves on the back and say, oh, I'm not racist. I listen to rap. That's all my best friends are like, no, no. But yeah. it got people to understand the other a little bit more. And so mm-hmm. I think people who are brown and mixed and, and showing up increasingly in our communities, that's a good thing for empathy and understanding. That means little kids are going to be going to school and seeing kids that don't look like them. We're going to see TV shows because marketers want to make money that speak to these audiences, podcast networks that are Black, Hispanic, and Asian focused. Like there's a lot of, even in today's guest, like an Asian American actor and producer who's bringing these voices to light. So another funny thing in our data, uh, we have a lot of spreadsheets for this podcast. And we think about <laughs> that a lot. Like, yeah, uh, we're more diverse than the U.S. population, but <laughs> there are some places where the U.S. population, the census breakdown is kind of beating us still. So uh, I think it means people are going to have to get used to it a lot faster because the realities and the numbers and you I mean, I guess we're in a post-truth society too, but numbers don't lie, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hopeful and I'm excited about this. I think the more we can be around people of different backgrounds and cultures, you know, whether we are majority or minority by definition is going to definitely breed a lot more empathy and understanding. And what is also interesting about this data is that Hawaii, of all of our regions in the U.S., is the most diverse at 76% of their population being uh, non-white, non-Hispanic, which obviously makes sense, right? They're an Asian Pacific island. And- yeah, but come on, they had like a starting advantage. <laughs> they did. They did. Um, let's but put all the diverse been... people out on an island far away. <laughs> there you go. Um, but let's get back to today's guest, Brian Yang, an actor and producer who's been in a ton of projects, either in front of the camera or behind the camera. Some of his most notable works have included Linsanity, which he helped to produce. He was on Hawaii Five-0 for about five years, many, many seasons of that. And he is right about to launch Snakehead, which is in theaters this fall. So Brian's had an amazing career as an entertainer, but Remen and I had a chance to sit down with him today and get to know him on a much deeper level. Yeah, and what's interesting is another friend of the pod, Lucia, introduced me to Brian more recently for a secret ninja fight club project that we're working on. And 
I've been on all these meetings with this guy, Brian. I immediately knew I wanted to go deeper with them. And the fun thing about this podcast has always been, let's go have a really real conversation with someone. So when we found out that Brian knew Sharon from back in the day, and I was starting to work with Brian like really frequently about some stuff you'll be hearing about soon, I was just like, we got to talk. And it's so interesting because he had this kind of like, I don't want to say all over the place, but very circuitous career that got him to where he's been and be it following Jeremy Lin around with a camera, working on something with Andrew Yang before people knew who Andrew Yang was, and starring in short films on Disney+, Plus, which you should go watch. (laughs) It's just really interesting, the connections he's able to make in the world and the stories like he wants to tell, and the reason why. Andy likes Hall & Oates. (laughs) Yes, a lot. He loves Hall & Oates. That's his calling card. (laughs) So we'll get out of the way, and we think you're really going to enjoy our old and new friend, Brian. Brian, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. I guess I got to ask, where are you from? That's racist. (laughs) No, no, no. It's racist if I ask you a second time when you tell me. So I will ask you. I will ask you the second time. (laughs) Yeah, Sharon's the racist, not me. Exactly. So I was born in Columbus, Ohio. I have some crazy roots in Ohio because all of my aunts and uncles and dad, actually, when they immigrated to this country, went to Ohio State. The Ohio State. The Ohio State, yes. But my dad took our family over to the West Coast when I was five. So I'm a Bay Area product, really. So where are you really from, bro? (laughs) Okay. Now I see. Yes, that is the racist insinuation. My parents- He uh, lives in the Bay Area. No one ever asked him that in the Bay Area. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, what part of the Bay Area? (laughs) My parents immigrated from Taiwan. They are Chinese born, China born, Taiwan raised, that whole story of 1949, KMT coming over from the mainland story. So I still have some extended family in Taiwan and I still feel very connected to that place. I think all of our first memories are somewhere around three, four, five. So could you feel the difference between Ohio and California as a Taiwanese American kid or... Were you kind of in this college setting? There were other Asian professors, parents, or grad students and stuff. Like, Did you feel a shift when you went out west? Honestly, at that age, the only thing I remember being different was that we didn't have to deal with tornadoes anymore. So, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to say, it, because at the age of when we left, I was five. My memories, obviously, are very limited. But what I can tell you is I have since gone back to Columbus on a number of occasions in the last several years because I wanted to go back to see where my parents grew up and even had some old family friends that my mom and dad made me go see. And and right away, I told myself if I had grown up here, I would have obviously had a completely different life. I don't know if you and I would be talking right now. Let's put it that way. I grew up in a bubble, to be quite honest, probably very boring backstory growing up Asian American in the Bay Area. How many times have you heard that story? I went to UC Berkeley. The only thing that I can say that I was different about growing up in the Bay Asian was that after leaving university, didn't go and work in Silicon Valley or choose a traditional career path. What did you want to be when you grew up back then? Or more or more importantly, what did mom and dad want you to be? <laughs> well, mom and dad never told me that you have to do this or that. My dad's an architect. No shit, mine is too. Oh, well, look at that. Okay. There was a little bit of banter about maybe passing on the business to me mm-hmm. at some point because he had started his own boutique architecture firm. But but there was never any real pressure to, 
to do that. And so when I was growing up, I wanted to be a journalist. I read everything cover to cover, newspapers, magazines. I was on the high school newspaper staff. I was the editor for arts and culture, basically, and sports, all the fun things. I thought I would either go into broadcast journalism or print journalism. And when I went to Cal, I quickly discovered there was no journalism major, much to my dismay. So I wound up thinking I would go into physical therapy. It, at the time- From was... architect to journalist, <laughs> physical therapist. Yeah, that's yeah. a weird, that's an unusual choice. It's a very unusual choice, but I loved sports and athletics and- Yeah, I okay. Grew up playing basketball. I see, the th I see the thread now, okay. So when I found out about this field where you don't have to go and give away 10 years of your life to be a doctor, but you're in the health science profession, you can be around athletes, you might- Maybe the idea of going to work for a team or starting up my own facility, that became interesting. I actually went to PT school, which is a three years master's program at Temple University, which yeah. is how I headed east. And basically, I, I only lasted halfway through before I left the program when I was honest with myself and said, oh, that's not what I want to do. What was that moment? Was there like something? Was it like a class, a moment, reading a book and you're like, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I got to cut bait. When I started doing rotations, they like make you okay. go to hospitals and uh -huh. actually work with patients and stuff. I got sent to this one hospital in, in South Philly and I was left with the task of taking care of the patient like I was a caretaker. So I had to not only perform their physical therapy, but also help them go to the bathroom. And obviously this is a very specific type of facility. Like if I had gone into sports and worked with athletes only, it wouldn't have necessarily been like that, but that was definitely one of the moments. But I remember I had a mentor and she said, look, if your heart's not in this profession, I'll tell you now, don't go down this road. This is a very taxing career. It's hard on your body because you have to be very physical from nine to five or you know, nine to seven, whatever it is in moving people's bodies, parts yeah, around, yeah, bending yeah. your own body, contorting it, it adds up. And this person who at the time was probably 10, 15 years older than me, really young. She would tell me my body is shot. I'm fried. I feel like the athlete. And I remember hearing that echo in my head of that mentor telling me these things. I was like this 40 hours a week, for the rest of my life, I don't know what I was thinking. And so I, I tapped out. I, I first took a leave of absence because I needed a year being the Asian kid. I couldn't be like, mom, dad, I'm quitting school. I had to have a, a, a slow exit, right? <laughs> you had to <laughs> retreat. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm just taking a leave of absence. I can go back. I need to find myself over the next year. And then that wasn't a pleasant conversation, but, but at least I had that out that I could come back. And so it made it more palatable for them. What it, so how do mom and dad react to, this is before taking a gap year was cool, before taking sabbaticals was like accepted. How did they react? And then what did you actually do in that year? What I currently do, which is work in the world of entertainment, I already had that seed in me at that time. So while I was at Cal, even though I wound up finishing with a biology major as I headed into grad school, I had started taking a bunch of theater classes. Mm -hmm. And I really fell in love with you got it the bug with performing. Yeah, I got the bug. I would do, I did plays and all these little like things. Got involved with productions off campus, and I have a lot of fun stories around that, by the way. But tell us um, some. I want to hear those. <laughs> well, okay. Sidebar. So the first short film I was ever in, I acted with John M. Chu, who is no way. Yeah, the today's director of Crazy Rich Asians, Into the Heights. 
GI Joe's among, amongst other things. So John was a, like an 11, 10, 11 year old boy when I was at Cal wow. and I shared the story with him years later. It was fun. He remembers, he totally remembers. I even have this movie on VHS. And then another fun story when I was at Cal, they shot the Joyla club, this dates me. The Joyla club was predominantly filmed in the Bay area. And there was a big scene that took place at, on the campus of Cal. It was the character of Andrew McCarthy. He was a professor he was married to one of the daughters and, and so they needed a bunch of background and my friend who was in charge of background casting at the time, he said, Hey, you want to work on Joyla club for a couple of days? You get 50 bucks a day, you get free food. I was like, sign me up. So <laughs> no idea what it was about, but I, I showed up on set and it was amazing. I was so wide eyed and just overwhelmed with this, this professional Hollywood set. And that opened my mind to the idea of like, well, I was curious, like, what is this world? And so thinking like, look at all these moving parts. Who, who's that guy behind the camera? Like, what does Russell Long do when he goes into that trailer thing? So I remember that was one of the impetuses for me to like take a theater class the next semester. And I, I wound up sharing this story with Janet Yang, who's a, a friend of mine. She was a producer who put this whole thing together. And she's still very prolific today, coming off the heels of sure, over, the, sure. over the Moon. And so I shared that with her. And I said, look, in a very indirect way, you helped me decide what I wanted to do. It's crazy. Like, you had no idea. I was just a little lowly extra, but, but I was so inspired by that production. And so when I look back and connect all the dots, it's just crazy to see, like, two and a half decades later, like, where everyone is. And so... So well, I... So, so fast, fast forwarding to so Philly in yeah. the gap year, yeah. like... That you have this bug, you have the seed planted. Hey, mom and dad, <laughs> I, I gotta go find myself. Yeah, I gotta what go do you find actually, myself. Yeah, what do you what do you actually do? What's the moment where things start to change? Was it in the gap year, or was it just slogging the East Coast for years and years? <laughs> I, I didn't come out of that gap year going, "Aha! I found exactly what I wanted to do with myself, or or how this is going to work." So one of the things that emboldened me to take this leave of absence immediately was I was cast in a Philadelphia Theater Company production of this Tony award-winning show called Wit. The New York version won the Tony, not our version. We were the regional, smaller city version. And that was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. But it only lasted three months. And so after that came and went, I still had nine months to twiddle my thumbs or figure out what to do before I was forced to go back to school. So in that period of time, as fate would have it, this is like... I think 1999, I had a friend from Cal who I was lamenting with, I'm not brave enough to just dive into this acting world full time. Like my parents would kill me. I wouldn't know how to survive, but I got to figure out a way to, to avoid going back to doing this dreaded career that I don't want to go back to. And so she said, what? You should meet this guy who I think you could help out. He's building a startup company, and the idea is to help celebrities and public figures help raise money, awareness, and volunteerism for their nonprofits. And so maybe with your background around Hollywood. Almost like a venture for America. Well, that would be the, that would be the, <laughs> what, what I did. You're such what a I spoiler guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Okay. So I worked for, I wound up meeting. I wound up meeting Andrew Yang. It was his first um, startup idea, probably three or four chapters before VFA. Okay, okay. 
And so I, I basically got my real, started to get my real life MBA. Wow. Working, working at this little company based at Fifth Avenue near K-Town. And I spent about two years trying to figure out how to make something from nothing with Yang and like two or three other people. So, but that got me to New York City. I wound up using my interest in media and entertainment my experience working this corporate nine to five, which I wound up doing for about eight years, not all with Andrew, and then discovering or getting more comfortable with the idea of becoming a producer, which is people always go, what does a producer really do? Uh, producers, <laughs> <laughs> we're like the project managers. Make sure the shit actually happens. <laughs> yes, yes. Show business is a two-sided term and we're the business side of the show. Producers have to find the money, put together the roster of cast and crew, you have to sell the movie, you have to take it to mar the market and everything about it, nuts to bolts. Like it's just, that's what we do. I basically, I dove in. It, it you know, definitely wasn't, easy. didn't know what I was doing at first, but that's how I arrived to essentially where I am today. Your passion is in building and finding other stories. So, so how do you juxtapose the desire to perform with finding someone's story and making it accessible for others? Because I think that's a talent that you really have. And I think something people trust and respect you for. How do you manage both sides of the coin? Or do you have a preference for either one? I remember as a I think I was still in college sitting in a theater at this Asian American film festival in San Francisco. And even at that, that stage in the, in the nineties, telling myself what I want to be involved with helping to shape and change the narrative, of the Asian American in mainstream media here. What, what would you perceiving the narrative to be? Why does every time we pop up on screen, it's either as a waiter a servant, a martial artist. I have nothing against martial artists, but when you see it over and over again, that moving image, it just, you grow tired of it. Always some f f other, right? The professional foreigner or even invisible, right? Even though you're on screen, you're invisible because it's like, you're just a prop. You're not serving the story. The story, the story does not revolve around an Asian family or, or protagonist in, again, in Hollywood mainstream. So that Asian American theater festival it totally flipped everything on its head because these, this was a, there's festivals in all the major cities, but my first exposure to it and seeing our stories front and center was, was mind blowing. I think the movie was yellow or shopping for fangs, both of whom were directed by the same team. I just was fascinated like at the possibilities of this. And I just thought, man, why aren't there more Asian American working in Hollywood, being three-dimensional, fully realized characters who are just part of the fabric of America and this, the story. And so my first interest was through being in front of the camera. And I told myself, I never want to learn martial arts because I don't want to perpetrate that stereotype. So if hmm. I get asked, can you do martial arts? I'm going to be, I'm, no. And if I lose out on roles, so be it. That's someone else's thing. They're, they want to do it. I won't judge them, but I don't want to make a career out of just being a martial artist on screen. Maybe short-sighted of me to say that looking back, because how awesome is Warrior? But <laughs> I, that's, that was- Yes, that was, the whole point of this episode. <laughs> just, wait, I, literally, I, I literally just rolled my eyes. <laughs> we were really trying to get Sharon to watch Warrior. You've heard those episodes. Sharon, you've had eight weeks. What the fuck, dude? Come on. I, I've watched the trailer. And it's really good. But I haven't watched any so of the fucking, episodes. That's so weak. Such a cop out. <laughs>
But it's now okay. that Brian Yang has endorsed it as well, maybe. Even if we have the cast of Warrior on the show and Sharon has to watch it to prepare. <laughs> hey, I can I make that I, happen, by the way. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> hey, Brian. Okay, so for anyone listening, if you can make that happen, I will watch Warrior. Okay, I, I'll, I can Deal. get you. I can Most expensive down. consumer Here. conversion ever. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear you. I It's the... I guess that's funny. Maybe you did miss out on work because of martial arts, but again, it allowed you to be behind the camera. I, I had this conversation, I think it was with a politician who missed the chance to go work for Obama, Savante Myrick, mayor of Ithaca. And as a result, he became the mayor of Ithaca, and he's like one of the national proponents for community policing and showing how it should be done. And it's like, I guess, Brian, you are this enabler now. This is some of the projects that you've worked on. Like, what's what's driven you there? It's always been this desire to want to build something, be a part of something that gives a voice and a platform for those who have been marginalized or just ignored. Because when I look back on my life, both professionally and personally, pretty much everything I've done has been rooted in that ethos. What's the pull to documentaries with you? Why more documentary projects? Why more nonfiction versus fiction? Well, so I, I started off in narrative, but when a few friends and I sat down in 2009 or 10, we came up with this pea-brained idea to chase Jeremy Lin, who was, at, <laughs> who was at Harvard at the time, around with a camera to document his journey into the NBA. And eventually, when he got onto the Golden State Warriors, he said yes. And we went on this journey with him from 11 through 13. And as everyone now knows, Linsanity happened in New York in 2012. And it, it changed not only his life, but I'd say it changed my life, right? And the mm-hmm. people, my, my teammates' lives. Because number one, that film took us on a journey around the world as we went to festivals and in different countries to present it and, and whatnot and got tons more meetings from it. It just becomes like a calling card on your resume and people go, oh, well, th- you did Linsanity. Would you be interested in doing this? And as time went on, nonfiction became a genre that became very marketable and mainstream, right? If you think about mm-hmm. it, documentary started off as your stodgy, boring PBS yeah. educational to today's true crime, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 30 for 30, Greta Thunberg, like they keep pushing the envelope and now documentaries are more like edutainment and companies are throwing real money behind it. Audiences are going out to watch them as much as they are fiction films. And so, so now it's become a viable business model. My wife and I were flipping through Disney plus and we watched a nice little short film called the little princess. And (laughs) then you sent your bio and I was like, holy shit. And if you don't know, it's about an effeminate Asian boy. How do you decide to tell that story? Well, I was only an actor in that one. So (laughs) so I I had nothing to do with the genesis of that whole thing. I did know a producer on it, which is how I got connected to to the whole thing. But but I can't take any credit for that. Obviously, though, I can say like, as soon as I got the script, I was like, I love this story. Yeah, I want to be part of this no matter what. I've always considered myself a pretty open-minded liberal person, but I think the last several years has taken it to another level. I definitely had my political awakening. And what do you I mean? Had, what do you mean by that? I, I have a second daughter on the way now. Of course, I wanted women to have get equal pay and, and be represented in the sports field the same as 
as everyone else. But now it's, it, when you actually have daughters, it's like a different, you know, well, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's not like, Oh, I trust the world's going to take care of it. We have a black president or an Asian guy can run for president. Right. It's, it's say, no, we all have to kind of put our elbows into it. If we're going to, if shit's going to change. Right. Exactly. More skin in the game. So yeah. that film on Disney plus, I wasn't just taking a gig because I was like, Oh, this will be f- cool to be on a Disney plus thing. It was like, this story is amazing. As a matter of fact, the filmmaker Moxie Pang, who made it, we've continued, we have another project that we're trying to develop now because I fell in love with their voice. I just thought this person really knows how to tell stories. They're always telling these stories of the underrepresented, which is again, going back to what I've always stressed and wanted to push, right? So you're about to have your second, probably by the time this airs. How do you view the way your parents raised you? How do you view how they were parents to you versus how you're a parent these days? We make fun of our first generation immigrant parents and families because we have a different experience. We were brought up here. We went to American schools. We grew up on American pop culture. We were rolling our eyes growing up at, oh my gosh, mom and dad, please stop speaking Chinese. Oh, mom and dad, please stop embarrassing us by being so cheap. Like, just, I just want to blend in. I just want to be American. Don't send me to Chinese school. Don't impose your will on me. They knew no other way. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. now generations later, I'm looking at my daughter going, well, I know it's going to be a different experience, right? Obviously they had the best of intentions for me and my sisters, but the way I'm going to raise my kid is probably going to be somewhere in the middle where there are values and cultural things that of course I want to pass down, but there are things that they instilled or tried to instill in me that I'm not going to try to instill into my kids. I don't want to call them mistakes. They were not the wrong way to try to raise us. But it was just a product of the time and circumstance. And so what do you hope that your two little girls, one soon to arrive, will be like? Like, what do you hope that they learn or or the impact that you make on them? I hope that they grow up fearless and have the confidence, courage, and intelligence to pursue whatever it is they want to do. I really Mm -hmm. have no preference or a lot of friends joke with me like oh you're gonna you're gonna want them to go into sports how would you feel if they said they wanted to go into martial arts (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh boy no hey look whatever they want to do honestly i i (laughs) i support and I, i i feel like i will support because i grew up wanting to be an actor wanting to work in an untraditional field right pursuing media and entertainment and so it would be hypocritical of me to be like hey you got to do a steady job i i really want them to experience the world my wife's background actually she's vietnamese born and raised in germany and then came to america when she was in high school so mm-hmm. her first language is german but she speaks vietnamese fluently with her mom and dad who still live in Western Germany and, but is now basically for all intents and purposes, Asian American. So pre-pandemic, we would go back to Europe every year and spend a significant amount of time there. My work takes me to Asia a lot. So I hope to be able to bring them out there and spend time there. There was a period where I was thinking we'd go to Taiwan during the pandemic and have our second child there, but that, that didn't work out. I want my girls to see the world. I want them to experience it all. And so hopefully that will help them as they grow to just have a broader view on things. And again, become these really bright beacons of hope in our world that that we need more of. So if you could tell that younger version of yourself 
that guy who was talking to mom and dad about a gap year. If you could tell him something, what, what would you tell him from today? I think that a large part of success is just by being committed, by not deviating from the plan, because a lot of people don't have the wherewithal to stick with it. There's so many dead ends and so many reasons for you to check out or quit, throw the towel in, but you've got to have the intestinal fortitude. You've got to have the intelligence. You got to have a little bit of luck peppered in. Don't get me wrong. I think that's also something you can't account for. So that's what I would tell a young person who's just starting out that if this is what you want to do, you can't look at this as a two-year commitment or plan. Mm -hmm. You can't say, I'm just going to go to Hollywood and try it out for a summer. It doesn't work that way. It's got to be a lifelong commitment. If you're always changing your, your mind every so often because you're not seeing immediate results, I that's just that's not the way it works. That's not how it's going to bring you to where you want to be ultimately. Intestinal fortitude. <laughs> Intestinal fortitude. That's, yeah. Or dedication to the cause. <laughs> or that. That, that's a nicer way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, Brian, when we first met very long time ago, I knew you as the guy who was an actor. This was before I think the documentary stuff really started. And here we are. It must have been 20 years ago, over 20 years later. We're so old. We're so old. And we are so old. And I've watched your career from afar. Like I saw the Dream League get developed. I saw Insanity come out. I saw all those great pictures of you on red carpets throughout the years. And you've brought so much meaning to what you're doing with your career. And I have to just tell you publicly that I'm so proud of you. And I'm really glad that our paths crossed again. In well, this thank way. you. Thank you so much. Just hearing that, it means the world. So thanks for thanks for saying that. Sharon's maternal instincts have been kicking in in the last five or 10 years. She's a proud <laughs> Asian mom now. Yeah, I'm just a, a Asian mom, all of our guests. I'm like, you're doing a great job. No, no, hang on. You're actually a bad Asian mom because you're not mean about yeah, it. I'm not, I'm not tiger momming anyone. Everyone no, gets a lot of love on this. Buck the trend. Buck the trend. <laughs> So I don't know, Sharon, I think we've gotten to some of the deep and dark secrets of Brian Yang's life. Do you think he's ready for speed round? I think so, Brian. I, I do think you've got a couple more dark secrets, but we'll let you keep those for now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next time. Yeah. Are you ready for speed round, Brian? Yes. Let's do it. What is one thing about you that no one expects? I think you, you may already know the answer to this, Sharon. Oh, I know what you're about to say, but tell the world. <laughs> tell the world. <laughs> I am probably the world's number one Asian American Hollow Notes fan. <laughs> and I, I would say top 10 fans, just period. How many I, shows have you been to? I've been to 48 shows. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've been to like 20 Weezer shows. So you just like blew me oh, out of the water. Okay. He is, he is serious about Hollow Notes. <laughs> So I'm a product of the 80s, uh, if yeah. you couldn't do the math. They're an 80s band. But most people don't know that they just never went away. They took a little hiatus, but like <laughs> they, they still cranked out new albums. Kind of like Weezer. Kind of like Weezer. I, I'm yeah. expecting this. Yeah. And they got less cool over the years because they got older. But <laughs> Kind of uh, like Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> but they've had this fierce resurgence in recent years primarily because yeah, of the yeah. movie 500 days of summer where they yep. repopularized that song you make my dreams come true the dance number where joseph gordon levitt comes out and the whole campus starts dancing with him when you saw that movie and i'm assuming you saw that movie in theaters you just like stand up clapping oh, at that moment. yeah 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 <laughs> i mean 
it, I can go on and on. We could do a whole episode just about Hollow Notes. But I think there's but, a podcast idea in this. But anyway, well, we'll park that for something else. So I'll tell you basically my fandom, the, the epitome of my fandom. Okay, so 48 shows. But I, I met a few people at shows where they told me they this was their 300th show. And that's when I was like, okay, I should probably back down from taking that throne. Wait, I, were those people Asian, though? They were not. They were not. There you uh, go, man. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But I landed on the show Hawaii Five O because of Hollow Notes. And I told really? Hollow Notes this in person on a live stream. So I was in Shanghai. This was like 2011. I was coming back to New York on, on my way back. I decided to stop in Hawaii to break up the trip. And while I was there, my friend from the casting office of Hawaii Five O said, you're in Hawaii right now. Can you please come in and read for this part? I did. Long story short, I booked the role and that turned into five years of working on Hawaii Five O. So the Hall Notes component of it was they had a concert there that week. And I decided that was my reason to go to Hawaii. I mean, as if you need an excuse anyways, but <laughs> I was like, oh, sweet. I'm going to chill in Hawaii for a week, catch a Hall Notes show before I go back to the East Coast. And, and then my life turned around. And I wound wow. up telling this to Daryl and John on a Huffington Post live stream because my friend who's a producer on the show at the time said, Hey, we're bringing Hollow Notes into the studio tomorrow. Do you want to be the first caller who gets to like talk to them? <laughs> oh and my goodness! So she totally like tipped the scales, made me. The you could say one she made your dream come true. She made me. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Good one. So I got to tell them how they changed my life, and then on the show, they said, "Hey, buddy, we're going to Hawaii again later this year. Make sure you get in touch with our guy, and we'll meet you backstage." You better believe I cashed in on that. So, so, uh, wow. It, yeah, it's pretty wild. I, I have a lot of stories like that around Hollow Notes, but I've seen them 48 <laughs> times, met them a few times in person. They probably know me as the crazy Asian guy who loves them. Who, you know? who hasn't made a documentary about them, dude? Come on. Well, trust on? me, that That's idea, the next project. That idea That's a great has idea. definitely been discussed. By, you could just quit. You could just quit. Yes, I would just, I would just, that right off in the sunset sunset with that that's it so anyway that's one thing that well i think the people who don't know me don't know but the people like sharon who do know me every time a hollow notes song comes on i will get a friend just texting me like or, or leaving a voicemail going hey and they'll just like literally like hold the phone up to the radio or 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 text me that Say It Isn't So is on right now. That's all. Bye. Like, I'm synonymous with their music. So I, I got to ask a question with a caveat. This is actually one of my favorite discovery questions, but you've made and done so much, so you are not allowed to answer this with any project you've been associated with. <laughs> because is there a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? I think every Asian American actor will probably have the same answer, so I'm no different. But if you've never had this opportunity to ask anyone on your podcast this question... I'll be the first to tell you it's Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Why do you relate yeah, to this book so hard? The, the book is basically about a journeyman Asian-American actor who is always cast as a stereotype or, as I said before, a prop in, in the different films and shows that they work on. I've never seen someone capture this in a novel, in a book. And Charles mm -hmm. just, just did such a wonderful way of of putting it all together, I, I think the book is getting a treatment for TV, if I'm not mistaken. And I was like, oh my God, I would die to play this part. 
but I'm sure it's going to go to like rental park or something. But so, <laughs> so that it's, it's a must read. This book actually got quite well known last year. That's awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll link that in the show notes and I'll put it on my things to read list. Yes. What is your favorite mom dish? Favorite mom dish. Oh, hmm. first of all, my dad's better cooked than my mom. Yeah. Then what's your favorite dad dish? So I have two answers to this question because while it's not my favorite dish that he makes, it is the one that I'm most fond of because so my dad, every time I would come home from college or when I moved to the East coast, came back to California, my dad would always, 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 always like have a bowl of fried rice. And that was like the home, the comfort food, right? It's nothing special. Like it's the most simple dish you could make. But I would say the the best dish he makes is this. Are you guys familiar with, I can say, well, oh, in English, it's called lion's head meatballs. Well, say it in Chinese. <laughs> it's basically a giant meatball. Like what well, it sounds like lion's head Do they meatball. serve it at dim sum? Those giant meatballs at dim sum? Is that mm. the same thing? No, no, it's, it's not exactly that. So it's like layers of cabbage with giant meatballs and like, you can put rice noodles in it. And it's, Mm. it's a very, I'm sure you guys have had it. It's, it's, it's not like this obscure dish, but that's, I love that. He does that so well. And that would be my, my favorite dad dish. What's your least favorite food? Oh, that's easy. My least favorite food is durian. I can't <laughs> damn I mean, that. I, I mean, that. It does smell like death, but like, oh, is, is it just because of the smell, but eating it is, is terrible for you too? Yeah, I think eating it is also is as bad as it smells. I, I totally get how some people think the exact opposite. I think of, I'm like, durian must be like- Hey, the... it's, a, it's okay for them to be wrong. Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, they're totally wrong. I've seen durian ice cream. I'm like, why would you ever do that? Yeah, like, yeah that's people like, really love that stuff. That's so wrong. I know. Like, Durian is like the Laurel Yanni of food. <laughs> like how how can the same thing be received so differently from different people? It's just yeah. it's the weirdest thing. And even in different ways, like everyone agrees that it stinks. Like there's no even people who love eating it agree that it smells totally gross. Yeah. But, but they but just Yeah, they say but it goes down different. Like it tastes yeah. great. I'm like I don't know. No. And I, I, I don't know why every like five to eight years, I'll be like, maybe, I don't know, I'll give it another try. And it's always like, why did I do that? It's, it, it never changes. <laughs> it's death. So yeah, no, don't ever bring me a, a durian birthday cake. Yeah. We'll make note of that. We'll make note of that. <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want on a podcast? That's not Hollow Notes, right? Okay. This is not anyone famous or public note or anything. It, when I was in sixth grade, I surprisingly won the elementary school president seat. So I was in a shocking upset. I beat this girl named Lizette Aquino, who was the perfect student, perfect extracurriculars, probably on her. I'm sure she's, I have no idea what she's doing, where she is today. But for some reason, I think of her from time to time because I, I always go, whatever happened to Lizette Aquino? Because I'm sure she's probably way more successful than me in life. Like probably, I, I can't even speculate. I don't know. Running a company. Have you tried Googling her? No, I haven't for some reason. But I think I'm going to do that after this podcast. But 
But I, I always wondered like what happened to her. And that was the one person in my life that I wish I kept tabs on and had a conversation much later because she was so devastated. And I felt bad because I didn't really want to be president. Like I, <laughs> it was just one of those things. My, I think my tiger mother was like, you're going to run for black president. And like, she ran my campaign for me. Like she came up with the slogan, start your year with a bang, vote for Yang. Like she made me practice speeches. Like it was just like she drilled this into me and I was just like, okay, I guess I'm running for class president. And I somehow won because I promised everyone that I would bring Olympic day to the school year. At the end of the school year, we would all get a day where we would do the Olympics. We would get a day off from school and just do whatever competition, outdoor, have fun, play sports. And so everyone went nuts for that idea. They voted me wow. class president. I, I like a true politician. I never delivered. And, <laughs> and Lizette was devastated. I remember her crying and I felt so bad. It stuck with me to this day that Lizette Aquino didn't actually, she would have done a much better job than I did, but I, I'm sure she's done fine in life. And so some would say you weren't making her dream come true. No, I, <laughs> you're going to use that. You're going to use that. Every one. conversation oh, from every now on brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd like to talk to sit down and talk with Lizette Aquino. If you're listening out there, Lizette, let's make this happen. So Brian, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Modern minority for me today means this idea of like being the best, the best chef or the best so-and-so and not, not qualifying it with the word Asian, right? Yeah. Or Asian American, because why can't we be seen as just American? And so at the same time, I'm proud of what this face is, right? And our community, the fact that we are, we are different. We are quote unquote minorities. We have different backgrounds. Our families come from different places, but that accounts for everyone across the board. As an Asian American today, I, as fractured as this country has been, and as disappointing as a lot of things, in the, especially the past 18 months or so, have the way they've played out, I do think there's been a lot of progress, certainly towards representation, towards opportunity, towards this idea of a more perfect union. The extreme ends of it are completely fucking shit up, let's be honest. But I do see progress in spades in very meaningful places and areas. And so modern minority to me means, honestly, it, it just means being an American, being a citizen, belonging, making ever more comfortable the with, with mainstream, our foods, our faces, our culture, we're more and more part of just the fabric of this country. So I do think we've taken two steps forward and, and, and at times half a step, maybe a full step back because of a lot of the divisiveness that's happening in our country. But overall, and perhaps this is the optimist in me, but I do think we are making strides. And so I look forward to the day where that minority label just is shed and we are just away. Yeah. people. But in the current climate, being the modern minority, it's I, I, I wear that with a badge of pride. But yes, I am Asian. I'm willing to talk about this. We need to educate other on our experiences and where, where we come from, what we deal with. But the more we talk about these things, the more these things will melt away. It's a great answer. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for spending time with us and reconnecting and sharing all of your stories with us. Yeah. And Brian, I think the work you're doing every day is getting us closer to that. So keep doing what you're doing. And yeah, we're there with you every day. Well, thank you for this opportunity. 
And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. People kept telling me day in and day out when I was doing music, like your ethnicity is not necessarily an asset when we go out into the actual marketplace to the point where for my first album, the idea was to maybe do covers and promo imagery that didn't show my face, but maybe showed parts of my body or my hair or whatnot, just like anything that would kind of cover up the fact that I'm Asian. In a way, it was empowering because it was like, listen to my voice, don't look at me. It was what got me in the door because I was so quote unquote unique, but it was also what never sealed the deal. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.